Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Daryl and Tina. Haggai chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We've made it all the way to chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1 and get all the way through verse 9 this morning. I don't know about you, but I know that my memories in life often fail me, especially with how things exactly happened. I grew up, and my first babysitter was the Power Rangers. Uh, and the old school ones, where there was just like the five primary colors, and that was it. Um, and you wanted to be the Red Ranger or Blue Ranger, depending on if you were cool or not. And then the other Power Rangers were just there, and they would fight these little Play-Doh guys, and then they would all they would beat them, and then the Play-Doh guys would bring in a boss, and that boss would beat the Power Rangers, and then the Power Rangers would come together, and then they would beat the big boss. There was always an explosion into the 20-minute episode. Every week, I was surprised at what happened. I just knew they weren't going to make it. So several years ago, I don't remember which streaming place, but they decided it'd be a good idea to put those old Power Ranger episodes to where you could stream them. And I'm, I, to my memory, my family wasn't there because I don't think they would have sat down and watched these with me. But I was like, I'm going to watch these old Power Ranger episodes. Like, I remember them so fondly. It was, like I said, my first babysitter. Uh, and so they don't hold up. I, they were terrible. I mean, it was just like my style of karate about that much. And then just like it was the same thing over and over. You could just plug and play. It would be a different bad guy. They would... Right, you'd have the Power Rangers beat the Goo People, and the Goo People would get their leader, and their leader would come and beat the Power Rangers. They'd come together, then boom, they'd beat the Goo People, explode every single week. It was the same thing. But, but in my memory, that was the greatest show of all time. I couldn't understand why my parents didn't want to watch that show. It made no sense to me. Now, now I get it. Our memories often fail us. We'll remember things in the past, and we'll either we, we do one of two things, right? We we glorify the past. We, we forget all the bad things that happened. We forget how we're feeling. We act like it was just the greatest time ever, or we just can't stand it. If you hear some people talk, they're like, I, I hated the past. We had no tennis shoes whatsoever. Electricity had just been invented. It was miserable. It was 150 degrees every day. You're like, that's, what are you talking about? But that's what we do with the past. And so often our hearts and our minds are are formed and situated and have these foundations that take place on things that happened to us in the past that plays out in the present and then that takes uh, control of how we view the future. That's exactly what's happening to the people in Haggai. If you remember the story, if you remember where we're walking at, the, the people had been in exile for 70 years, and then God brought them back through a pagan ruler, and he says, go back, and so the people get back. They initially start rebuilding the temple, because when Babylon took over, they just plundered everything, destroyed everything, knocked down the temple, knocked down the walls. That's where Nehemiah, Ezra, all those books are about building back this city, this, this temple that took place here. And then we saw in, in Haggai that the people had like started rebuilding the foundation. They had, they'd got the altar set up. They'd got the foundation, and then they stopped. You had the Samaritans who kind of came in and, and, and wanted to help, but they didn't want to help because it's the temple, and so they got mad, and they started spreading rumors, and lo and behold, it just kind of, it's this log jam. And then the people also wanted to build their own houses. 
They wanted to have their own things that were set up and ready to go. So 16 years goes by, and then we see these prophecies, these, these sermons come from Haggai. And so we saw in the first sermon, which took two weeks to go through, that, that, that Haggai shows up, and God tells him it's time to start rebuilding the temple. And so he, he talks to everybody, he tells everybody the message, he, he explains it all. It's all of what chapter 1 is, just that first sermon from Haggai. And in one of the rare instances in the prophets, what we see are the people obey. They say, you're right. They repent of their sin, and they begin rebuilding the temple, which is where we pick up in Haggai chapter 2. So we're going to read Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and then we will uh, walk through the verses individually. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shittel, the governor of Judah, and to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. For the Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and will fill the house with glory, says the Lord of armies. And the silver and the gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. And I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Let's pray. Father, as we walk through this passage, as we walk through this text of Scripture, I pray that you give us ears to hear your word. That you give us hearts that would be softened and receptive to what you say. That as we look at Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, that you would encourage our hearts or we need encouragement. That you would convict our hearts or we need conviction. And that you would sanctify us and grow us as we hear this message. Speak to us this morning, Lord. Help us to hear you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's reread Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, on the, the, uh, the first part of verse 3. On the first day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shittel, the governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? I want to pause in the middle of that verse. So we have... Haggai does four sermons, four prophecies to these people, and every one of them are dated specifically. It's one of the few books of the Bible that does this. So we know that this prophecy takes place October 17th, 517 B.C. Some of you may remember it. It was an eventful day. This prophecy takes place about a month and a half after Haggai's first prophecy when he says you need to rebuild the temple. 
Now, it's important. The date is important. It, it, it doesn't ring a bell with us, but this is an important date that takes place because what this is, is it's the seventh and the final day of the Feast of Booths. Oh, sorry, the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. And so what would happen on that seventh day is all the people would gather together. And the Feast of Tabernacles was, was sent to remind these people that God had saved you out of Egypt. And so for a week, they would live in tents. They went camping for a week to remind them that God gave them a home in the land. And on the seventh day, they would gather together. And it's likely in this setting, when all of the people are gathered around, that Haggai begins speaking. And we can see what's happened. They're looking at this foundation that they've laid. They're looking at this altar, and their eyes are cast down. Their heads are slumped because they know that this temple they're building is not going to be like the last temple. They're thinking about the past. There's some guys here who are building this, who are involved in this, that remember the previous temple that the Babylonians destroyed, covered in gold sparkling and shining. You'd walk up to Jerusalem. Can you imagine like no electricity? You walk up to Jerusalem and what are you going to see? The reflection of the sun off of the gold of the temple when you approach. And so they're looking at this foundation. They're looking at their bank account and they're going, this temple is not going to be anything close to what that old temple was. We see this happen in, in Ezra. I want to read it. This is Ezra chapter 3 verses 10 through 13. And when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph holding cymbals, they took their positions to praise the king as King David of Israel had instructed. And they sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good, his faithful love endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's house has been laid. Right? So they build the foundation, everybody's excited, everybody's yelling, but listen to these verses. Imagine this worship service. But many of the older priests, the Levites and the family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw that the foundation of this temple, but many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the shouting of joy from that of weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard from far away. What a weird worship service. You have the younger people who don't remember the temple rejoicing and being excited and reading the Psalms and reenacting when, when David said, told Solomon, do these things, play the trumpet, have all these things happen. They lay the foundation, they're rejoicing, they've brought the temple back, they're going to build it, they're going to make something of it, and then they look at the older people who had been there and remembered the first temple, and they're equally loud, but they're crying, they're not rejoicing and singing joyfully. They remember what it was, and they recognize immediately this will never be what we used to have. Isn't that the tendency in all of us? We glorify the past or we vilify the past. How many times have we heard we just need to get back to the good old days? back to whenever whatever version of the good old days for you was mine was in the 90s being babysat by the power rangers but that may not be good old days for you the truth is we can't right not until then when elon musk invents that time machine we'll all go back to the good old days but until then we're stuck here 
And that's not an accident. God has you here in this time, in this place, where you live, for a purpose and for a reason. It's not an accident. But for some, it's like, I don't want to even think about the past because it was just so terrible. Right there, <laughs> there are restaurants I won't eat at because they treated me bad in the past. The past is not meant for us to live there. It's meant for us to remember. It's meant for us to grow from. It's meant to shape us and mold us to set a foundation. It's meant to remind us that the promises that God made in the past are still true in the present. See, when the temple was built by Solomon, he had a lot of wealth. He had the greatest treasures from around the world were brought there. David knew he wasn't going to get to build a temple because God told him you're not going to. And so he began accumulating the best lumber and the best gold and the best stones. And they had the best masons and the best gold workers all working on this temple. And they shape it up. And on the inside you could go in and it looked like the Garden of Eden with palm trees that were set up and fruit. And, and all these things were shaved and carved. You had this massive curtain that would have been in it to separate the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place. All of these things would have been pristine and nice. It would have been like a... a, a first wonder of the ancient world. It would have been this huge, just beautiful, beautiful place because they had the wealth to do that. That's what the older people were weeping about because they remembered that and they know we don't have those kinds of funds now. See, what the Lord is teaching them through Haggai is that the most important part of the temple was not the gold-covered walls. It was the presence of God. The presence of God was more important than the quality of the temple. That's key to our understanding of Scripture. Where God dwells is most important. The presence of God is the key. Because if we can understand what made the old temple great, if they can understand what made the Solomon's temple great was that God dwelt there, then that changes how they focus on the present. Look at verse 3 again. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when, we, when you came out of Egypt and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. Remember, this is the group that repented. This is the group that heard the prophecy from Haggai and said, you're right, we repent, we turn from our sins, and they did. They obeyed God. They began building the temple. This is the group that obeyed God. And so they begin building the temple and are quickly demoralized when they realize they don't have the funds to build something that will be quite as nice as the old one. And so what does God do? This is important. Does God flood them with wealth so that they can build a nice temple? Does God scold them for idolizing the past? Does God rub it in their face? Yeah, the old one was nice, but you sinned and you ruined it and now you get this little heap. What does God do? 
He gives them the truth. Did you catch that? God doesn't go, no, no, that one wasn't as nice as you think it was. He goes, yeah, this one's going to be nothing compared to that one. But I love what he says next. Even so. Yes, this temple isn't as good as the old one. Yes, you don't have the funds to make it nicer. Yes, it's going to be demoralizing and hard to keep up your morale as you building. Yes, you repented. Yes, you obeyed. Yes, you didn't. Like, you, you followed. Yes, it's as bad as you think it is. Even so, keep going. Whatever situation you find yourself in shouldn't change what God has called you to do. Did you see three times Haggai told the leaders, like, right? He says, be, even so, you be strong, Zerubbabel, as you govern and you lead these people. Even so, you be strong, Joshua, as you're the high priest who's going to spiritually guide these people. Even so, the remnant, the rest of the people, you be strong in these things. I know it doesn't look great. I know it's not what you want. I know it's demoralizing. Even so, you keep trudging along and you keep doing it. And I love, there's just one sentence, work. Even so, Put on your gloves, get out your shovels, and get to work. This isn't the salvation, like, works-based salvation idea. This is already God's people. They've already been saved by Jesus Christ. They're not working to earn God's favor. They're not working to earn God's approval. What they're doing is recognizing that God has saved them, so whatever happens in their life, even so, they're going to keep working for the glory of God. Did you catch at the very end? Haggai says, don't be afraid. There's, there's a continuous aspect of this, this verb that doesn't get it picked up here. It means stop being afraid. Right? They're fair. They're, it's not say don't be afraid, right? You're not afraid now, but you might be afraid later, so just don't be afraid later. No, this is you're afraid now. Stop being afraid. Even so, be strong. Work. And we see that that Haggai draws their hearts and their minds back to a few events of the Old Testament. Did you catch that? He says, in his message that God gives him, he says, this is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. He's talking about the Exodus. What happens in the Exodus? God's people are saved from an oppressive ruler, and they enter into the promise. They, they They exited Egypt. They got covenants with them there. What does he say? My spirit is present among you. The presence of God is what's the most important part. This isn't the first time the Israelites have heard this kind of encouragement. We should be grateful that they're hard-headed. Because we see this over and over and over again. In Deuteronomy 31, when Moses is speaking to the nation of Israel and Joshua, he's not going to get to enter into the promised land, so he's kind of giving them, this is your farewell as you go off into the promised land. Deuteronomy 31.6 says this, Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or Don't be terrified or afraid of them, for the Lord your God is the one who will go with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all of Israel, Be strong and courageous, for I will go with this people into the land that the Lord God swore to their ancestors, and you will enable them to take possession of it. Be strong. Even so, don't be afraid. 
Joshua, as he's leading the people to conquer the land of Canaan, says this in Joshua 1, 6-9. Be strong and courageous, for I will distribute the land I swore to their ancestors to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, so that you will have success wherever you go. The book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Later in Joshua, Joshua 10.25, Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God will do this to all the enemies you fight. David, when he's telling Solomon, here's how you build the first temple in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 28.20, David says this, And David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God, my God, is with you. He won't leave you or abandon you until all the work of the service of the Lord's house is finished. Ezekiel, the prophet, prophesying to the nation, in Ezekiel 34, 30, says this, Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and they... Uh, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people. This is the declaration of the Lord. Later in Ezekiel 37, 27, my dwelling places with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jeremiah, another prophet, 30, 11, for I will be with you. This is the Lord's declaration to save you. I will bring destruction on all the nations where I have scattered you. However, I will not bring destruction on you. I will discipline you justly. And I will by no means leave you unpunished. Ephesians, right? Just in case you're like, well, this is just an Old Testament thing. Paul in Ephesians 6.10 says this, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. This isn't the first time the Israelites have heard this message. But it's one they need to hear again. Whatever your circumstances are like, maybe you are doing exactly what you want to be doing in life. Even so, be strong in the Lord. Maybe you are not doing what you want to do in life, and it is just eating at you, and you're miserable. Even so, be strong in the Lord. Maybe you have everything in life that you could ever want. Twelve golden doodles, eleven chickens, whatever your dream is. Even so, be strong in the Lord. Maybe you don't have anything in life that you really want. That your life has just gone off the rails and it's not been anything that you thought it should be or that you wanted. Even so, be strong in the Lord. Maybe you're longing for more in your life and you just cannot be content with where you're at. Even so, be strong in the Lord. Maybe you love like the schedule that you have for your life and you like the busyness or the, the laxity of it. Even so, be strong in the Lord. Maybe you hate your schedule. You want to do things when you can or you want to not do things when you're over. But even so, be strong in the Lord. Wherever you're at in this moment, even so, be strong strong in the Lord. That's the message from Haggai. We can think about the past. We can glorify the past. We can vilify the past, but we cannot live in the past. That's not where the Lord has placed us. He's placed us in the present. So no matter what is going on in the present, even so. And it's worth noting all of those verses that I read to you were written to a group of Christians, a group of believers. We have a danger sometimes of taking those passages and applying them individually. 
And there's certainly an aspect of that that we need to do, but we cannot get away from it's God's people that that was spoken to. It should shape not just our individual lives, but the church that we belong to. See, the past reminds us that God covenant, that God committed, that God promised us. And so in the present, when things aren't going the way they are, or when we want them to, or when things are going really well, or whatever present circumstance we find ourselves in, we're reminded that God's presence is here even so, and that's more important. But what about the future? Verse 6. For the Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. Uh, With The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. So we have Haggai now saying, all right, we've we've dealt with the past, we've dealt with the present, now let's see what happens in the future. There's all sorts of arguments about what exactly is going on here. I don't think it's healthy for us to try to pinpoint all of these to an exact date that they did happen or that they will happen. I think when we look at this, what is important for us to understand is we see clearly that God controls nature. Right? I mean, I can jump up and down, and I'm pretty big, so I can make a good chunk of earth shake, but I can't do what the Lord does. Only God can make the heavens and the earth shake. The sea and the dry land. This is one of the, 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 need, like the, the most humbling things we as modern like, people need to understand. We can't control the ocean. You get on a boat, you go out there, and the first thing you have to recognize is it is very, very dangerous because it is uncontrollable, except Jesus speaks and calms the waves. Only God can control the sea. Do you know why? Because he owns it. It's his. Nations may think they're rich, but all of their wealth is actually the Lord's. Ask the Babylonians how well their wealth went. They were (laughs) the most powerful nation in the world was used by God for this weak little nation to destroy them, plunder the temple. They think they're on top, and in reality, it's God who's using them. So we can read those passages, and what it it should remind us is that the, the Lord is coming that everything belongs to him, that it can look chaotic, that it can feel chaotic. We may not be happy with the political climate that we're in. We may not be happy with whatever's going on, but none of that is beyond God. He is God. It's all his. But I want to get to verse 9. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first. At Christmas time, we sing songs and we call Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us, his presence. When Jesus is born, where do the shepherds go to worship him? Not the temple. They go to God's presence, which was in a stable. When Jesus dies, what happens to the temple? 
the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt. Right, if you walk in there, just nonchalantly walk in there, you would drop dead. They would tie rope around the high priests in case they didn't consecrate themselves enough and weren't holy. If they would walk in there, they would drop dead, and then they wouldn't have to go. They could just pull them out. They had bells on their robes. They would know if you don't hear the bells, just pull them out. That's the place where God tore the curtain from top to bottom, symbolizing that now God's presence, God's temple, God's tabernacle, where God dwells is not a physical location, but rather in the hearts of his believers. Do you know, ultimately, like if we, we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, do you know the line that the Jews are able to get the Romans to kill Jesus for? Have you ever thought about it? The line is, Jesus tells them, you can... Uh, you, you can kill, or I, I will destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And so for the Jewish people, they're like, one, I don't know what construction crew you got, but that's fast. For the Romans, that sounds like insurrection. And what Jesus is saying is my presence is the most important. This is why the gospel is so beautiful, brothers and sisters. Because it's Jesus in my place. It's not us having to work our way to the presence of God. It's not us having to dust ourselves off, to clean ourselves off, to put on our best suits, our best ties, to make ourselves presentable to God. This is God coming to us because we cannot get to him. This is the presence of God making a way for you and I to be saved. Went to a, a, a men's conference this weekend, and, and the guy who spoke, uh, he did a, a great job, but he talked about three things that I think would be helpful for us as I was thinking about this this morning. He talks about the presence of God, which is the, the purpose for Haggai, right? We can glorify the past, but that's not where we live. We don't live in the future. The future is meant to give us hope that Jesus is still in control. We live in the present, which affects how we view the past and how we view the future. But at the men's conference, he talked about if we're in Christ, if we understand the gospel, then what happens for us being in Christ is that our identity is not rooted in anything else. So we were at a men's conference today. A lot of meat. My stomach's just not feeling great, but I'm so excited for potluck. So our identity then is not in how macho mainly we can be. Our identity isn't in if we have the best casserole. Our identity isn't in our careers. Our identity isn't in our last name. Our identity isn't in the clothes that we wear, the truck that we drive, the career that we have. If our identity is in Christ and in Christ crucified, it frees us. And if we're in Christ, there's joy. It's probably one of the most overlooked aspects of salvation, in, in my opinion, the joy that comes with it. That life can be terrible, that the world can be falling apart, and if we are in Christ, we have joy. They can't take that from us. And then if we're in Christ, we think about our life and we think about our death differently. That our days are numbered. That how we live our life matters, but in a hundred years, what is it going to matter? 
that we live with the end in mind, that we understand what the future holds. We understand that God's promises are true, and so we live for this kingdom that Jesus talks about, which means when we're in the present, the things that often hold people down in the present, their career or their jobs or whatever it is that we idolize, we let go of because we know what the ultimate future holds. And I love this. There's a play on words that's happening here with Haggai. He says, I will provide peace in this place. Have you ever heard Jerusalem called Salem? It's Hebrew for peace. It's a play on words. It's, it's God through Haggai saying that this place that's named peace isn't really going to bring peace. I will bring peace when I come. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. That it's God reminding us that we're here. Now. Like that this is where we live. This is where our feet are. That it does us no good to dwell on the past. Outside of looking at the past and being reminded that the same gospel promises that were true then are still true now. And that whatever our past looks like, however much sin is there, however much righteousness is there, whatever is in the past that the Lord forgives, the Lord uses, and that we grow in the present. And that God's promises are still true. He, his presence is with us. He does not leave us. He tabernate, dwells inside of us now if we're believers in Jesus Christ. And this brings us hope for the future. That the world is weird. That we can't control things. But the God that's good and the God that we worship does. And so we rest in him. So whatever's going on in our life, whatever is taking place, the highs, the lows, the goods, the bads, the tired, the not tired, the bored, the entertained, whatever is taking place in our lives, even so, we lean into the gospel of Jesus. Whether that's for the first time, when we repent and we turn to Christ and he saves us at that moment we're justified. Or if it's for the two millionth time that we recognize our sin, we repent, we turn to Jesus, and then he continues sanctifying us in that. We live in the present on the gospel promises of the past and the gospel hope of the future. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. God, we're, we're grateful for the past, and we're grateful for the future that we know you hold in your hands. We're not promised another day, God, but we know that you hold those things, and we trust you, but we're grateful for today, that we can be here. God, I pray that your, your word would soften our hearts today, now. that your gospel would impact us, that we would grow in you. That you would help us to live lives, Father, that are strong in you. Not in our strength, in your strength. That you would grow us, and that you would keep us in you. God, I pray for the believers who are here this morning, that you would sanctify us. Help us to be more holy hearing your word and help us to live lives that would continue to be uh, characterized by repentance and leaning into your gospel. 
and we would share that gospel with a lost and dying world. God, I pray for unbelievers who are here, that you'd help them to see the joy of the gospel, the freedom of the gospel. We don't have to, to dwell on the past. We don't have to worry about the future. We just rest in the present, and we get to work. God, I pray that you would save them. They would repent from their sin, and they would turn to you in faith. Help us to worship you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Daryl and Tina are going to lead.